From the editors of Cannabis Business Times and the team at Quest, this is How to Win a Cannabis Cultivation License, a new limited series that focuses on this integral process, the starting line for all of us in the industry. My name is Eric Sandy, and I am the digital editor of Cannabis Business Times. We are pleased to bring you an in-depth look at the licensing process in the cannabis industry, over 10 episodes, as things stand in 2021. This is episode six. We've zipped across the U.S., and we still have a few more cannabis markets to visit during this series. In the past five episodes, we've looked at how businesses navigated the cannabis license application in Pennsylvania, Missouri, Michigan, Massachusetts, and California. Upcoming episodes will focus on Florida, Oregon, and Oklahoma. Because the plant remains federally illegal and more or less in the hands of state regulatory agencies, we're left with a patchwork of policies that differs on key points, from the legacy markets on the West Coast to the newer markets on the East Coast. So far, one truth that remains fixed in the conversation is that no state market has gone straight to adult use. Every state that has passed some sort of adult use cannabis legislation has first developed a medical cannabis program. The transition from medical to rec is an important part of this conversation. We've already heard about that as several of our guests recounted their experiences coming up in the market. We're going to bring Peter Marcus from Terrapin back into the conversation. You'll remember him from episode one, when he recounted Terrapin's expansion into Pennsylvania's medical cannabis market. The company holds licenses in Colorado, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Missouri, and as of early 2021, pending applications in Arizona and New Jersey. The Terrapin team has seen both sides of the coin, medical and adult use, and has worked through the transition, a process that involves a bit of business recalibration and administrative task management. Every program that's flipped from medical to rec gave some level of preference to existing businesses. In most cases, you know, you start as medical, you've developed your brand, you've gotten to know the community, you've done it responsibly, the sky never fell, people had jobs, and everybody got along. It's like what we're seeing in Pennsylvania now is the reason we're having a real recreational conversation in Pennsylvania now with an actual bipartisan proposal is because you know the program didn't fail the sky didn't fall and patients are getting served and people are ready to look at the next step so there's a lot of benefit as a company to starting as medical and then transitioning to reg if you get in ahead because a you're probably going to be given some level of preference and b you have an easier time convincing your local community to opt into something recreational because you've already been there you're already creating jobs there you're already growing responsibly or selling responsibly and they're like yeah let's give this a shot so yeah, there's immense advantage to it. Um, that being said, you know, it's another process. It's not like they came by and rubber stamped us. You still got to go through another licensing process. You have to administratively surrender your medical licenses if you're looking to surrender your medical licenses. So just another administrative process. In Michigan, I would say it was much more administrative, you know, than a merit-based type of application switching to recreational. That being said, the local cities like Grand Rapids wanted to make sure of something. So we had to include a sustainability plan 
to try to be as green as possible in our operations to fulfill the city's own mission around that stuff. And then we had to include a social equity, diversity and inclusion plan, which is amazing. I'm glad that cities are finally starting to require this. They basically wanted to make sure that what we were going to do was offer opportunities to those who were left behind in a racist, targeted, failed drug war. So yeah, I mean, there, there's still going to be some licensing and requirement stuff, but you have a significant advantage when you're switching from medical to recreational if you already exist there. And it's why I, you see um, investor types going hard in the M&A route for those kinds of existing licenses as programs are, start flipping recreational. After a relatively quiet 2020 in the capital markets, the financial side of cannabis is heating up once again this year. Cannabis businesses were deemed essential in many states during the coronavirus pandemic, and a wave of legalization has generated momentum from Election Day onward. Mergers and acquisitions, private investment, cannabis sales, it's all through the roof once again. With this increasing number of M&A transactions comes a sense of consolidation across the industry. Operators are not only bringing their SOPs across state lines as licenses trade hands, but they're also becoming more sophisticated in their understanding of the business. This goes well beyond horticulture. Cannabis executives and management level leaders are helping to shape the market that they're a part of. More and more, as Vanxt Vice President Jennifer Bedford said in a recent Q&A with Cannabis Business Times, the leaders in the cannabis space are coming from pharma, supply chain, distribution. It takes more than a knowledge of the cannabis plant to get far in this space now. And this brings up the question of barriers to entry. It really depends on the market and what you're talking about. So I think for recreational immature markets, like we talked about, the barriers are more administrative and then, you know, fitting in with the community. But then, yeah, when you're talking about brand new, especially medical license applications, they just keep getting more and more sophisticated. You know, like going back to the Wild West days in Colorado, they didn't. You know, it was like, they just had to come up with a system to figure out how to give licenses out to all of these bootleg stores that were operating unlicensed in shopping centers throughout the state, you know, without any real understanding of what was happening. You know, you flash forward to the last licensing process we went through in Missouri, and that was the most intense application I've seen, quite frankly. Missouri voters passed a medical cannabis initiative in 2018, and the state's Department of Health and Senior Services went on to issue 60 cultivation licenses and 192 retail licenses. As of early 2021, more than 120,000 patients have registered with the program, according to the department. It's a good example of the medical cannabis markets that came online in the past few years. A limited number of licenses and an open door to out-of-state investment and multi-state operators. With 60 cultivation licenses, Missouri certainly isn't the most limited license landscape, instead falling somewhere in the middle. And state regulators had a chance to see what worked in other states and what didn't. License applications are no longer being accepted for cultivation facilities in Missouri as of early 2021. And in fact, interested businesses had only a two-week window in August 2019 to apply. This is another key, regardless of which state you're operating in, You'll want to move fast and be nimble. 
The sheer volume of questions being asked of each prospective business owner is daunting enough on face value. You have to be ready. Each one was obviously your history as a company, you know, like your backgrounds, you know, what you're doing community wise, what you're doing um, security wise, you know, pharmacists that you would have on staff, plant ex botanists that you would have on staff, um, you know, the financial disclosures between all of your investors, also including the backgrounds of your investors, how they're impacting the community. Um, you know, um, environmental plans, um, questions related to um, dosing and, you know, um, what education you're providing to your patients. They want examples of your education, of your brochures. And that was just the application process. Flash forward to you get awarded and then Missouri made you go through another step, which was commencement inspection and the commencement inspection is before you can even open you have to hand over all of your sop literally for every single aspect of your operation and if you don't have that sop ready to go then you have to create it and you have to figure it out you know otherwise they're not going to let you open so you know i'd say comparing colorado going back in the day to missouri which was the last uh, major application we went through um night and day i mean it's we're you know let's just say that if any other industry had to go through an application like that for a business they would fail and be complaining the entire time because it seems on face absurd to be making a business go through that many questions except you're talking about a really highly regulated industry in a new market where people don't know regulators are just trying to figure this out for the first time in Missouri. They don't know what they're doing. And so they want to make sure they set the program up for as much success as possible so that when it comes time to regulate, they are set up for success. And so you've seen it get so much more complicated. As the licensing process becomes more complicated and nuanced, state and local regulators have determined that social equity provisions are an important element to include in this paperwork. This goes back to that economic development and job creation thread that we've been highlighting throughout the series so far. Terrapin has included equity and outreach as a cornerstone of its business for years, and Peter's job duties as communications director involve overseeing the company's corporate social responsibility actions. We'll get to some more specific examples later in the episode, but as Terrapin has grown as a business, the team has noticed those giving back to the community and diverse workforce hiring policies becoming more of a mandatory pillar in the licensing process? It's an interesting question, and one that most businesses will need to navigate as they prepare their own license applications. How important is it to hitch a social equity policy to a business license? And who is held accountable for that work? I worry that too much of the industry is lip service when it comes to that stuff. Um, <laughs> You know, that stuff has been built into our mission as a company since day one. I mean, Terrapin, you know, we're 
close to a million dollars in nonprofit donations and over a million by the end of the year, you know, that's not something new that happened as a result of licensing processes. That's something we've been doing for 12 years is working with nonprofits in the community. I mean, we've always found, I mean, you know, Chris, who got into this, who's the owner of Terrapin, you know, he did it as a social justice issue. It was for him righting the wrongs of a failed drug war. And it's not surprising to me that he's one of the only independently owned cannabis companies still um, for having got into it for those reasons. Look, I think it's absolutely necessary and wonderful that governments are requiring this stuff and um, uh, making you come up with a social equity plan and sustainability plans and stuff like that. I worry that companies hire consultants to develop whatever plan looks good on the application, writes a few checks, and then checks out. Because like to create a positive community impact, you got to see it through. You know, we have LOIs with every single nonprofit we partner with that says, this is what we're going to give you and follow through with in terms of commitments. And then we're going to sign it and then you're going to hold us to it you know that's not a requirement in applications or anything that's just something that we feel we have to do um so that we can show our commitment and that we're following through with that um i do and then you know it's about so for instance i'll give you a few examples so we work with this group the color of cannabis out of colorado Color of Cannabis is this really great group that um, is working to provide um, opportunity to uh, the BIPOC community looking for access to the cannabis industry, either through an entrepreneurial uh, or through a worker type of um, program. Um, we came in as a founding member to them, but we didn't just want to um, write them a check. So they um, set up a workshop as part of their program. It's on Welton Street in this historic black neighborhood in Denver. Um, got held up because of the pandemic. They had to take it virtual, but it's a work. It's a training uh, school for uh, people of color looking for access to the cannabis industry. And we offered our staff as our directors as course experts to teach courses. You know, the courses are on licensing, the courses are on paying your taxes, public relations, marketing, you know, all the things that go into starting not just a cannabis business, any business really, but then of course, with a focus on cannabis and the unique licensing aspects and stuff like that. We teach about um, social equity and how they can, you know, take advantage of programs to get ahead and stuff like that. When it comes to your HVAC needs, Quest is proud to operate like business partners, not just vendors. From consultation to factory startup and commissioning, they're committed to ensuring the success of your project every step of the way, long after initial installation. Quest also backs all of their IQ series equipment with the largest factory direct service team in North America, exceptional warranties, optional service plans, and remote web monitoring to provide you with the kind of worry-free, trouble-free ownership experience that no other competitor can. Accountability. That's a key word when dealing with social equity and the good work that a new industry like cannabis can provide to the broader community within which it operates. 
Whether we're talking about the local population or, inevitably, about the national population in a more structural basis, the new design of cannabis business license applications does push some accountability back onto the business itself. If you're not living up to your intent to remedy the past ills of cannabis prohibition, then you stand a chance of losing out on the opportunity to work in this industry at all. The question is, how are you following through? Are you doing the volunteering? Are you actually showing up, putting a face to what you're doing? And what we call it planting local roots is like, are you just growing dope or are you planting local roots? And um, and for us, it's, it's part of our mission statement as a company. I do believe that these applications can force other companies that don't have that as part of their mission statement to play ball. Um, I do hope that those companies realize the value of following through, but I worry that they put a facade up to meet the requirements of the application. And look, in the end, I guess if your government and, you know, those companies, whether their motivations were pure or not, um, I guess if your government and you've gotten these companies to actually involve themselves with the community, then great. I would just like to see a little bit more genuine spirit about it um, and not just to meet the requirements of an application. And it's important to keep returning to that word, accountability. But it's also helpful to see how this ties into the broader economic landscape. Social equity, as an umbrella term and as a facet of cannabis business licenses, can be in its own way a communication vehicle for your customer base. Not only can a cannabis business choose to lift up the local workforce and develop a diverse team of employees and leaders, but these social equity type policies can demonstrate to your potential customers just who you think you are as a business. They become a part of the story that your business is sharing. That's why these policies need to be genuine and intentional and ongoing. This is the cannabis industry. Like our customers are people that want to do good. These are people who, but like the cannabis consumer is for the most part, kind of an active person. They, they're intelligent. They're at, they, they want to get activated in their communities. They want to, you know, like when our customers saw the work we're doing around social equity, saw the nonprofits on our website that we're partnering, people were like, how do I get involved? Also, that is so amazing that you're doing this. This is why you're my favorite cannabis company. And like we have polling, you know, there are surveys out there that shows that like 87, 88% of millennials are literally making corporate buying decisions based on the moral compass of that company. We're living in a society that is waking up and is tired of the of the divisions and the polarization that overshadows all the good we should be doing. I personally believe that if you're a corporation that shows your worth in that space, in the corporate social responsibility space, you know, you're going to do better. In some ways, this push within the cannabis business license framework toward a more inclusive industry is just the sort of thing that was needed to get cannabis out of the so-called Wild West, where older legal markets on the West Coast more or less let anyone in, the tightly regulated markets that are coming online now serve more of a gatekeeper role. The businesses that choose to participate in a more robust, community-driven marketplace will earn their keep. 
The more you give, the more you get. Accountability only works if there is recognition of a responsibility to give back and be better. This is something that many Colorado businesses found themselves learning in the early days of legalization. It's a commonplace theme nowadays, something we've remarked on throughout this series, but the businesses that helped forge the identity of legal cannabis in Colorado were the ones who prioritized a measure of accountability. The Wild West days are gone, but as the most mature cannabis market in the United States of America, um, licensing has changed. Um, so, you know, and, and this is more reminiscent of recreational markets in general, um, is it's much more check the box than it is narrative um, driven. Um, so there's basically two kinds of licenses for cannabis there's merit-based and then there's lottery you know and in colorado it all depends on the local community so each it you know it's not ubiquitous across the state of colorado when a new market comes online they get to choose how they do it so like when we you know our newest market is uh longmont colorado and um Longmont was a merit-based application process where you had to show community impact, which we're all about. But I, personally, I think that, you know, or as a company, I should say, you know, merit-based applications are the way to go um, for a town, especially one that's just adopting marijuana for the first time, because you're guaranteed the best actors, right? Like you gotta, you gotta meet the qualifications that the city puts forward. And in almost every one of those applications, there's some level of community impact. How are you bringing jobs? How are you improving the community? How are you helping nonprofits in the community? How are you leaving a positive community impact? It's very unique, the average business, when they apply for a sales and use tax, don't have to prove that. Sometimes it feels like we're running for mayor when we do these applications because no other business really is asked to like do so much for a community, but it's amazing that they do that because A, cannabis industry for the most part is willing and able to step up. Um, B, we're living in a time where corporate America truly needs to lead by example. Um, and so we're a big fan of merit-based applications. Um, so you see it's different throughout Colorado. Uh, Longmont did that. A new city uh, that we've been working with, Broomfield, Colorado, is just coming online. And they chose kind of a hybrid model. So you have to first pass certain merits and qualifications to enter the lottery. And then those that pass and enter the lottery, lottery then it's a lottery system. Um, so it's very different. And then of course in Denver, um, you know, for the most part, you're buying an existing license in Denver, right? So um, if you're opening up, you know, like, you know, there's, a, there's enough turnover right now that it's actually probably easier in Denver for the average person to go the turnkey route. Um, and that's then a very different application process. That's more administrative, right? Um, mm -hmm. You're you're purchasing the application. You have to prove. You have to, you know, meet the the minimum requirements to work and own in the cannabis industry in Colorado. Merit is important, even with the heaps of administrative tasks now overlaid on the licensing process in general. 
As we close this episode, let's return to Michael Ward, CEO of Harbor Farms in Michigan, who explained in episode two how he worked with the city of Kalamazoo to craft an ordinance that would work on multiple levels in this new industry. There's certainly an administrative angle to this licensing process, but you have to know what you're doing too. It's often not simply a matter of checking boxes and paying the man. As barriers to entry have risen, so too has the sophistication of prospective cannabis business entrepreneurs. Like we mentioned earlier in our recent interview with Jennifer Bedford at Vangst, the new cannabis business executive tends to have experience in pharma, supply chains, distribution. Ward, for his part, comes from the manufacturing sector in Illinois. And his point is that as more people enter the space and learn how it works and help write the ground rules in the first place, it will be clear how to succeed in cannabis and what skills are necessary to bring to the table to prove that merit. To the young, driven entrepreneur, it's not too late to enter the cannabis space. It's just different than it used to be, only a few fast years ago. Well, it's going to be a much easier path for them. Um, I, the municipalities have really ramped up who's available, where it's available, what's available. Um, the unfortunate thing is, is that uh, on the property side, the property owners also know what's available and what's, you know, and they're going to, you know, I call it the cannabis tax. Anything that uh, is related to cannabis is taxed or charged three times, four times what you think it should be. And luckily, I was able to broker the deal with the city at a very fair rate to get this property. But once the zoning is done and people understand that, okay, this property off Highway 94 is available in Kalamazoo and the real estate listing, uh, the people, the owners and the listing agents know that this is a proposed cannabis site, the dollar amount's gonna change precipitously and it's not gonna, it's gonna be much uglier than it should be. So the, the entry cost is gonna be higher now, in my opinion. Um, I think in relation to uh, the fact that it might be getting a little late to get into the Michigan market because just there's so many growers and processors and dispensaries in, uh, in the state already and we're all trying to find our footing um, and it's working well but this winter uh, what happened in just recently in the state uh, back in September when they no longer would allow caregiver product to come into the legal market um, that saturated the market in the fall and winter uh, and we're still kind of working through that so hopefully by the time that someone would find their footing, get their licensing, find their property, get with the municipality, that it will have worked its way out. Um, and I feel it's actually starting to work its way out. Uh, we've seen a tremendous amount of increased sales in the last couple of months. Uh, and we're flushing out that material that's was saturating the market in the fall of 2020. It doesn't happen overnight, though. And it doesn't happen with a one-person team. Part of what makes the social equity conversation so important is that a new industry like cannabis demands a wide range of opinions and past experience. Yes, the executive level cannabis operator is being shaded in a bit more clearly. 
supply chain management experience and distribution slash logistics backgrounds, but the holistic team environment demands a more diverse set of perspectives. If you want to appeal to a diverse and evolving customer base, then of course, this is critically important. And as we keep this conversation up, it becomes more clear why state and local regulators might be mandating an equitable business plan from the jump. Well, there's one thing that's in the application process that's called, you know, your social equity statement. And uh, it's really important to have a very diverse group of people that are involved with the organization and uh, providing that diversity will definitely separate you from the rest. And uh, it just was something that came into the application process at the end of when I was getting licensure. So it wasn't a huge aspect of what we had going on at the time, although we have an extremely diverse team here at Harbor Farms and which makes me very happy. And, uh, you know, we do not check the box. That is, a, you know, there's a whole discussion about employers who check up, check the box, meaning, you know, if they have any sort of criminal history, prison, any, they did any time, they had any sort of criminal history, like I said, that if you check the box, they're immediate, they're just disqualified from working at your establishment, you know, so we do not check the box, you know, previous history, we do not use that against them. Um, in the application process, if they qualify, they qualify on their merits and, uh, and then we move on and give them the opportunity to prove themselves. I mean, everybody doesn't make it, but you know, the vast majority have. So where do we go from here? What sort of advice would someone like Michael Ward, a CEO at a licensed cannabis cultivation business, have for a younger professional who might be inclined to pursue a career in cannabis? As Leafly reported earlier this year, the cannabis space now supports more than 321,000 jobs. With more markets coming online in the future and sales projections leaping considerably over the next five years, there's no reason to think that number will do anything but explode. More jobs, more opportunities. That's why we set out to create this series, why we've been reporting on the licensing process since Cannabis Business Times was founded in 2014. How do you win a cannabis cultivation license? The licensing aspect is daunting. It's not, it's not so daunting that it should prevent you from getting into the business, but it, it can be something that is very evasive. Um, they wanna know everything about you. They, any, bank, any bank account you have, they want three years of statements, you know, joint, your children's accounts, if you're, you know, they know everything about me. In fact, the state of Michigan knows more about me than probably my wife. But uh, the fact is, is that you just need to do your homework. And it's really spelled out well. I mean, that you know, it's a checklist, just go down the checklist and better understand, you know, where you qualify, where your pitfalls are, and just move on. Um, and you'll plug the holes. It just takes time. The one thing that I can say about this process, it takes time. So if you think you're going to jump in today, that's great. But I would have to say, plan on a year to get, you know, your feet underneath you and understanding the marketplace that, you know, where you're at, you know, whether it's Michigan or Utah or Pennsylvania or Massachusetts, they're all different. I would have to say that in the licensing process, 
that's one aspect of it that's going to be daunting. But the other aspect of it is understanding your environment and understanding where you plan on hanging your hat, because th that that is going to give you a deep understanding of what you're up against. If you're interested in learning more about the licensing process and you're listening to this series as it's released, join us at Cannabis Conference 2021 in Las Vegas. The show runs from August 24th to the 26th and an all access pass gets you into our create a winning license application session. Securing a cannabis business license is one of the most critical and perhaps one of the most daunting first steps in launching a business in this increasingly complex and competitive industry. Make your application stand out from the crowd with takeaways from this can't miss session for any new or expanding business. We're going to continue releasing episodes over the next four weeks, every Friday, introducing you to characters around the business who found their way through the tangled licensing process and who have plenty of advice for anyone interested in following along. In the meantime, though, we're all ears at Cannabis Business Times. Is there something you want to hear in this podcast or in future series? Is there a story that you think sheds light on the licensing landscape in the U.S.? Send me an email anytime. I'm at esandy at gie.net. GIE is our publishing company. Or reach out on Twitter at CBTMag. We're here to serve the market. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm the digital editor of Cannabis Business Times. Our sound editors are Alexander Garrett and Jay Boyden. And this series is brought to you by Quest. <laughs>